I had been going to therapy before I went to, um, before my gap year. Um, I'm a big, big proponent of therapy, especially for black women. Like, talk to somebody. We hold all the stuff inside, or we and we carry so much weight without really processing it. We're not taught to process it in a lot of ways. From somewhere around the world, welcome to the Black Women Travel Podcast. Hi, my name is Wanda Duncan, and I'm so glad you're joining me as we explore the paths of Black women who've made travel a large part of their lives. Welcome to the show. Hey loves, it's Wanda, the host of the Black Women Travel Podcast. I'd like to invite you to become a patron of the Black Women Travel Podcast. There are a few budget-friendly tiers you can choose from so that as a community, we can continue to heal, ask for what we deserve, get it, and inspire the next generation. Tap the link in the show notes and choose a monthly contribution that suits you. I'm so excited about the episodes you'll hear that will nudge you to love yourself deeper and take more action in your life from that empowered place. Please consider becoming a monthly subscriber through patreon.com slash bwtpod. Get ready to hear another great episode. Okay, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you please tell us your name, where you're from? your current location, and the name of your business. Okay. My name is Rashida Dow. I am from a very long story, but uh, the very short answer is California. Uh, My current location is South Florida, and the name of my business is Shooters on the Loose. And can you tell me a little bit about how you invented the color yellow? (laughs) Well, one day God said, black woman, yellow. I'm yellow for me. And you answered the call. Myself, I just heard the message and I ran with it. You better run. Listen. So how, okay, how has yellow, and before we get to travel... How has yellow entered your life? Like, where do you even get all these yellow clothes? Like, it's amazing. Okay. You know, what's funny is that, um, so last year, we're, we're get, we'll get to this later, but last year I was on a gap year. And so I didn't have a lot of clothes with me. And so I'd go to different places and my habit became, um, if I was leaving home, which is, I really call South Florida home, but it's not home, kind of another long story. Um, But if I was going, I would go with a very basic amount of clothes. This is advice that I got from someone when I started traveling um, long-term. Go with a very basic amount of clothes and then buy things when you get there. And that way, A, I have um, more like local things to remind me of my travels. And B, I'm not trying to travel with a suitcase full of stuff. 
Um, and one thing about local clothes, if you're going to certain places where the clothes are cheap, if something happens or if you have to leave them behind because you're overweight in your luggage on the way at the airport, which I can't be the only one listening to this podcast that has experienced that. Um, when that happens, if I have to leave clothes behind, I'm not like, you know, passing out in the airport and acting a fool. <laughs> or like when they tell you, you got to pay like a hundred dollars to get your bag on the plane. You're not like, ah, you know, I can just, you know, throw out some conditioner and maybe, I don't know, a couple pairs of shorts that I bought and I'm usually pretty good. I saw some video of some thin person with like 75,000 layers. <laughs> I saw that video you saw like jeans and, and I was like, I can't, I'm not, I can't do that. I think that, that there are certain things in traveling that I think are really a young person's game. And I can't be on a plane trying to sit down wearing 30 layers of clothes. So I know it's really early in this <laughs> podcast, but I already have a correction to what I said. When I said throw things away, I don't actually mean throw things away. I, I mean, leave things close to like a trash can on the floor, on the side of it. I'm not like in the airport throwing out clothes. Um, I did that once. I think it was in Mexico City. And within like two minutes of me leaving it there, I'd seen like the one of the bump, 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 one of the cleaning like people pick up yeah. all the things. Yes, pick up all the things on his cart. He had a trash can. He did not put them in his trash can, girl. He put them aside on his cart, like he was going to deal with these things later. Maybe see if they fit anyone. Maybe see if anyone wanted this conditioner, this brush, all the stuff I left, and like took it off on its way. And so it is a way, it's not like giving back, but it's not being wasteful at the same time. Oh, so, so she's a conscious queen. I try. It's really hard, y'all. <laughs> like there's so many different things to think about in this world. Um, there's so many things you can get wrong when traveling and experiencing different cultures. I try to be very gentle with myself when I'm not that conscious, but I also try to bring the learnings that I gain along the way with me everywhere I go. So for example, what, what do you think is difficult about navigating different cultures? I think that navigating our own culture, like your, your home culture is, is hard enough because like, humans, you know, like if, if you didn't have to deal with another person ever, it would be pretty easy. But as humans, we all interpret things in our own different ways and we all receive and give differently. And the same thing can mean 10 different things to 10 different people. And so navigating that at home is hard. And then you take that on the road with you and you don't know the languages and you don't know the customs. You don't know the core culture of the community and, um, things can be pretty tough. I don't remember what country I was in, but I remember one country I went to last year. I wish I could remember what it was. I felt anxious all the time. And I realized it's because the people there spoke to each other in what I took as a very aggressive manner. Like they, they were loud and in each other's face. And I was like, Oh, I don't do this. Y'all like, well, what's, what are we, I, I don't deal with that very well. Um, I don't, uh, I absorb people's tension in a way that all of that around me all the time uh, created anxiety in me that I, I didn't, it, 
creating an anxiety level that I didn't want to function at. And so for me, um, going to a culture, I could, if that, I could be bringing something about my own culture that makes other people uncomfortable in their countries with me and not knowing it because maybe they haven't experienced someone like me before, or I haven't experienced someone like them. And they, we have this disconnect between um, who we are and how we portray ourselves in this world and how people in different places can receive us. So they thought nothing wrong about like being really kind of rough with each other. And I, it like appalled me, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. I was just like, what, what, I'm, I'm tense because of this. And I, I recognize that when I go to other countries, I could be doing, I could be creating that irritation in the people who were there with my habits that I may not be aware of. Is this and that like- are not intended to be negative to anyone. And is this something that you've been conscious of and like dancing around with, uh, like your whole life? No. Okay. So conscious of, I think I became more conscious of it when I, I traveled to a lot of places in a very, in a short, I would guess a short amount of time. So I became more conscious of it because I was going from culture to culture, um, pretty quickly. And so it was like, you had to, you could see significant differences for me though. Um, I'm, I wouldn't say I danced around it. I kind of was who I am. I can't really be anything else and kind of hope for the best. I would try to observe how other people in an area behaved, but you can't research every detail of where you're going and you can't become someone else because that's who the people who live there are. You should be respectful of whatever the culture is. Like I'm, you know not wearing thong bikinis in the Middle East, no shade to anyone who does do that. Cause I know there are places where you can over there. And no but shade I, to your body who would like deserve that. Right. <laughs> not that it should be in the Middle East, but definitely thong bikinis. But you know, like I, I want to try to be, and I know that's a very trite example, but it's the one that came to mind. Um, I want to be as, as sensitive to other people and aware um, without like going overboard. I, it's funny. I, um, I told my mom the story the other day of, uh, back to the Middle East. I was in Doha a couple years ago and I was, uh, leaving the museum of Islamic art, which is this gorgeous building, stunning. It was just, I, I was absorbed. I was just, ugh, I loved it. Um, I was there most of the day leaving at the end of the day. And I got on to leave. There's an elevator that takes you down a level outside of the building. Um, And I got on the, I was getting on the elevator and there was a guy with four or five, it was an older man with four or five younger women. And I do not know what that man's deal was. I was wearing a t-shirt, a long sleeve sweater, like a long sleeve cardigan over it and jeans. This man did not want me on the elevator with him and whoever those women were. He had a a cane walking stick and he shook it at me aggressively like he was gonna hit me with it to keep me off the elevator. I don't know what his deal was. It may have been cultural. 
it may have been whatever. I took my ass on the elevator because I was tired and I was over his shit. Because I was like, like, I'm not showing any body part that is offensive in general. I'm not showing any body part that you don't see on other people. I, I have as much right to be in this space as you do. And I know other people might think differently, but it's kind of like a guy screaming at me in a language I don't understand and attempting to assault me just for being in the same space. Maybe I am doing something offensive, but like threatening to hit me doesn't help. Like it doesn't get us anywhere. And because you've threatened to hit me, I am now not going to cower to you. I'm getting on this elevator. We're going to ride the one floor and then we're going to go our separate ways. Bye. And so it's kind of like, there's that line of being, trying to be respectful. But for me, there's only so much I'm going to do. So like, if I may, you sound a little bit like a kid who's gone back and forth between parents. Interesting. Uh, No. So, uh, uh, Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, I don't even know what to say. By the way, yes, you. That's not my business or anybody else's business. It was just an observation because someone who would go through such lengths to keep the peace. It's like, well, where where did that come from? What kind of environment did you grow up in, or what kind of environments were you subject to in your life that would make you so hyper aware? Not that you shouldn't be, it's just all this stuff usually comes from somewhere. And that's the stuff I'm interested in. Oh, so, so you want me to have feelings. I wonder that's what we're doing. <laughs> I mean, clearly you have them. I just want to talk about them. Like <laughs> Oh. Wow. Excuse me while I have a moment over here. Thank you. Um, no, I what I, I didn't go between parents. I didn't live with I've lived with um other members of my family besides my parents and my parents, and one parent. Um, but it wasn't so much a go-in-between as much as I think it's just the role I, I played in my family. Um, regardless of which home situation I was in. And these were all mostly very healthy situations. It's not, there's no, like, uh, and all very good reasons uh, for this living situation. But it, No, it's not. It's not always trauma. It's not always abuse. Sometimes yeah. it's just... Like you're just born a a people pleaser, <laughs> essentially. Like you're born no wanting peace. Family. You're born born wanting everything to be okay. To oh, like no. keep the stuff down. No one in my family would allow you to call me a people pleaser. <laughs> They'd be like, "Who are you talking about? That's not her." So it's it's not necessarily that. I think that I am a um. I'm a me pleaser at the core. Like I want things to be easy and I want things to be chill. And when they're not easy and chill, I'm out. And that is kind of it. Like I I want to have a good time in this country. I want to feel comfortable and I'll feel most comfortable if I'm not like. On pins and needles. (laughs) Right. (laughs) If I am doing things that, that are going to have people staring at me because I am and offending them, like I, that won't make me feel good, especially because a lot of time, a lot of ways you can offend people is to offend their religion. And like, I just, I'm not, I'd rather not. 
Um, and that's going to make me more comfortable. Has it, that played into your previous corporate life as a lawyer? <laughs> um, interesting enough, my job as a lawyer uh, was a lot of telling people that they couldn't have their way. I was a gatekeeper in a lot of ways of new ideas. And so people would come up with their great new ideas. And then I'd be like, oh, no, you can't do that. And they'd get mad and they'd argue. And so I would have to argue. <laughs> like people would tell me I didn't know the law. And I'd be like, okay, but only one of us in this room does. And it's not you. So who could it be? Right. So um, I had a very uh, niche practice that no one understood for a lot of parts. Like, eh, it's hard to explain. Um, People often think that they can be a lawyer if they can read the law. So a lot of times I would have people, uh, and usually a particular subset of people, argue with me about things like, oh, I, I, I went and I read that. And it doesn't say what you think it says. And I'm like, the fuck are you talking about? Like, <laughs> wait, like, uh, I am paid good money by this corporation we both work for to be the person who interprets the law. And you are the person they pay to program some shit in the computer. So I do my job and you do your job. Um, so there was definitely no sort of let's let everybody get along every like not wanting to offend people. Um, I don't want to, for the most part, make enemies, but I also kind of don't care if you're being disrespectful. <laughs> like, so she's the boundary enforcer then. I, I am a boundary ninja. And so like I, I had that exact situation happen in a meeting and a woman in the meeting looked at me like, Oh, this is going to go bad. Cause I was like, what are you, why do you think that all the time I went to school and all the time I've specialized in this area of law, you can just read a couple words on a piece of paper and you know more than me? Is it because I'm a black woman and you're a white man? Like what, what is happening? Like what is the dynamic here that makes you think that you are superior at my job? And I'm sure you think you're also superior at your job too. So you're better at both of our jobs than I am at either of them in your mind. That's not, that's not a thing. It's not a thing we're going to do today. So you do your job. I do my job. We both move on. How many years did you have this role? I had the role at two different companies for, give me a second, just short of 10 years. So what, how did that impact you? Like, I know you took your gap year and it took a lot for you to get to the point of taking your gap year but what things did you have to unpack from that experience because you talked about it being a result of your being a black woman possibly yeah so I um I had been going to therapy before I went to um before my gap year um I'm a big big proponent of therapy, especially for black women, like talk to somebody. We hold all the stuff inside or we, and we carry so much weight without really 
processing it and we're not taught to process it in a lot of ways. So go, yay therapy. Um, but back to your point, I was, I was going to therapy and one of the things we always talked about was my job and it wasn't that I hated my job. It was that um, the people I worked with had never been lawyered before. They were young people who can best be described as creatives with an entrepreneurial mindset inside of a startup company. And so they heard my no as a suggestion and wanted to have like 30,000 meetings about my no or go behind my back like I hadn't said no. Um, The company I worked for before that, they were people who were older and more used to working with lawyers in a corporate setting. So when I said no, they would push back a little, but they'd be like, okay, she said no. Like she's not just saying no because she wants us to fail or she's not just saying no because she hates me. She's saying no because she knows what she's doing and it's illegal. Um, And so still there was pushback, but it wasn't as like aggressive as the second company. The second company, my, my therapist was like, oh no, they're disrespectful. Like she was like, why would you get them? 100% when they treat you like this. And I was like, I don't necessarily think a therapist is supposed to be telling me this, but you know what? I appreciate this. But I mean, Um, you came to her for her services and she studied to be a (laughs) therapist. I never argued with her. I never once. I just took it all in like, okay, okay. You're, you're telling. All right. Um, But the, the issue was I'd spent the past decade and (laughs) something my cousin talks about with me. I spent the past decade looking for the ways that things can go wrong. Like this is, it's my career is to say like, yes, you want to put this in play. It sounds good theoretically. These are seven different ways you fail and if you, you can fail. And if you fail in any of these seven ways, which you swear you won't, but it's all computers and numbers and stuff. So things are going to fail, right? Um, these seven different things are illegal. You know what I mean? Like, and you have to pay fines and it's people's money. And that was, I think at the core, the core of why my concern was so deep was that I worked in the auto finance world. And so I'm dealing with people's money. And as a black woman, I know what it means to other black women to own cars, to get your car repossessed, not be able to pay your car payment. And if the car company is messing around with those numbers and they're not right, or they're not charging you correctly, or they're charging you a late payment when one isn't due, I don't want you to have to spend your lunch break arguing with the company about what is right and what isn't. I want them to get it right the first time. And so that was my role there was to say, no, 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 we're not going to take the chance that X happens or this failure happens and something goes wrong and the the customer is impacted negatively. Like that's not, that's not cool. And so we had to have a lot of discussions about that um, in ways that I felt like sometimes people don't appreciate what it's like to have something like a car payment be so important or so crucial to their monthly budget. But the overall issue um, was that I spent my life arguing with people and people who know me in my personal life. know I'm not about to argue. I will say my piece. I will listen to your piece. If I'm deeply invested in this conversation, in this issue, I will go back and forth with you a little bit. But if I 
have to argue with you over and over, this isn't this isn't it. It's and not there, sorry. No, go ahead. <laughs> um, there was no one who would intercede on your behalf because that was clearly a, a company culture issue then because if, if people are allowed to challenge you, allowed to challenge you, it's because somebody so, hasn't taught them what you're there for in the first place. So it's funny. At the first company I um I went to, I one of the people who pushed the the person who pushed the most, I spoke to his boss once and he was like but that's why he's a good employee because I want him to get this thing. The thing he's trying to get done, he's trying to get it done and you're in the way. So he, he's a good employee because he, he's the best out of the other people who work for him as well. He's really good at his job because he, he tries to push past you. And that guy would try to push past with creative ideas. Like, we, okay, we can't do A, but can we do A too? And I'd be like, no, like all of A doesn't work. But he would, he would try something like that. He wouldn't keep coming back with A, 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 like some other people would. But then I, I spoke to that, that specific employee and I was like, you are the person who makes my job the hardest. And we had a whole come to Jesus meeting and everything changed because some people don't understand that like, I'm really, I'm, I'm really not an ogre. I'm not like, I'm not sitting under a bridge collecting a toll. Every time I tell you no, I don't get a little bit richer. Like it really isn't. I'm just, it's my job. At the second company I did it with, it was kind of a company culture. So there was no one to say, don't do that. It was kind of like, uh, there was no order. It was kind of just chaos. And people would have, uh, it was funny. I would, I described it as people would have an idea in the shower in the morning and they'd want to implement it by the end of the day. And that's not in the area we're talking about. That's not really smart, (laughs) but a lot of people that they hired didn't know enough about working in that area to know that like you have to plan these things out. And just because something is just because you can, adjust something to do a new program or change something and you can figure it out doesn't mean you should. And so it was a company of, if you can do it, just try it out and see what happens. And so I'd get a lot of people saying like, but it doesn't matter if it's illegal, if it's just like, you're telling me it's illegal, but if it's just like a, a trial, that doesn't really matter. Right. <laughs> like it's people's money. It doesn't matter if you do it to like 20 people or 2000, like if it's illegal, it's illegal. Um, And so we had a lot of, of that and people wouldn't take the learning from one conversation with me and take it to the second conversation. They would try the same thing over again. Like, Oh, but it's just, you know, we're just testing this out. So that should be okay. And I'm like, eh." (laughs) so, as far as the gap year, like I'd spent a decade doing something that doesn't come natural to me and looking at like worst case scenarios. And I do this in my private life too. And I do it all the time now. Like instead of looking at something and seeing, like saying what's the best that can happen as one of my friends always says, like what's the best that can happen? I, I grew into a very, what's the worst that can happen kind of person. Like every situation was, how does this go wrong? Because it was, it's what I did for eight hours a day. It was like, how does this go wrong? How does this go wrong? And then like arguing with people who were like, that would never happen. And then watching it happen like a week later, you know? So it was kind of, 
I needed a break from doing something that was just so negative and took me out of my character as far as like the arguing, arguing about dumb shit. Honestly, like that. I, I will argue about things I am invested in. I will, I will have a conversation with you if you matter to me. And this is a conversation I think is important. Those people did not matter to me. And these things were not important. They just wouldn't listen because I didn't want to hear what I had to say. So it was kind of like, this is not, this is not how I want to spend my best years. And I really have no idea what the best years are. So I kind of don't want to spend any years doing it. <laughs> you better say that. I'm just, what are we talking about here? Um, You talked about going to therapy and being weighed down. You also mentioned that because Roshida, our good sis, our gap year good sis, got on the cover of Expat Divas magazine, the cover in her yellow. Um <laughs> The gratitude issue and a quote that was pulled from your article was that seeking freedom uh, that you can't while you're weighed down. So in your journey of seeking freedom for yourself, what are some of the things that you've had to put down that were weighing you down? Uh, the first thing was stuff. I had a lot of stuff. And it was something that like, if you're one of those people that have stuff, like lots of things, uh, you know how hard it is to get rid of things because everything has their meaning or their memory. Um, and I felt like I had to have all these things. And so the first couple times I left the U.S., I was overweight every time in the airport, like, hey, Ma, I need you to come back and pick, pick up like these things or like moving things around from bag to bag to try to get the weight right. Um, because if I left without all my things, my world would collapse. I've got a full storage full of things in California that like, do I need my bed in storage? Do I need my mattress? Like I loved that mattress. It is a dream. It is literally the best, most comfortable mattress I've ever slept on ever. But if it's in storage for two years, Am I really just wasted? Like, anyway. Um, so learning how to not be so connected to things that I needed to have all my things with me um, was really important. And one of the things I, I tried to do on my very first trip was before I did my gap year, I did about two weeks in China and South Korea. And I did a test run going just to carry on back. Now, Leaving the U.S., my carry-on bag was stuffed full of things. Like, there was no room. So I had, a, I had a rolling carry-on suitcase and, I think, a backpack. There was no room in my suitcase for anything. One of the flight attendants was like, no, girl, you go to China with an empty suitcase. You're doing this all wrong. And I was like, okay, yeah. But it was a test to see if I could travel the world with just a suitcase. Um, I couldn't. That I know. Like... I need more things than a carry-on bag. I might be able to do it now. And if it was just two weeks, I could definitely do it now. Um, but one of the things I talked to my therapist about before leaving was like this feeling that I needed to have all these things with me and not knowing like how to choose what to take with me. Because my plan was to leave the U.S. and not come back for a year. So like, what do you take with you if you're traveling for a year? What, what are those things? And I, I really struggled with that. It was kind of like, 
but like I want my lotion and my shampoo. And we, we talked through that a little bit. And one of the things, because um, I was so worried about like black girl hair. So like I go abroad, I'm somewhere and I can't find back to conditioner because it's important as y'all all know. Um, I can't find a conditioner that works at all on my hair. I was really worried about that. And then in talking through it with her, I got to the point of saying like, but maybe I'd find something better. Like maybe I won't find, if I carry what I love, what, I, what I'm used to all the time, I'm not giving myself an opportunity to find a better option abroad because I'm so scared that all the other options will be worse. And so that really opened me up to saying like, oh, I don't need to bring a suitcase full of clothes because every place you go in the world will have clothes. Now they may fit, they may not fit, there may be issues, all of that stuff. Um, Different countries sometimes have different sizes that are typical in that land. But, um, you know, you don't have to weigh yourself down with stuff. So that was probably the most freeing part was kind of saying like, Yes, I'd like to have 50 pairs of shoes with me, but I'll be okay if I don't. Um, And I spent three months in Chiang Mai in uh, two different small apartments, very small um, studio apartments. And I would have told you before that there was no way I could live in a studio apartment, but I loved it. I, I mean, I could clean the entire place in like 10 minutes. Just boom, bam, done. And before it would take me like days to clean my house. And so it was just really like, okay, this is, it's a different way of living. It's not something I'm used to, but it's nice. It's nice to not feel weighed down like that. And it was, it was hard. It was nice, but it was really hard to say like, are you sure you're not going to need three different coats? Are you sure? Yeah. You know, like I'll, I'll be okay. I'll figure, I'll pick one. You'll be okay. So you uh, got your yoga certification. Um, was it 2010 or 2011? I don't think it was that early. I think like 2015. Girl, I don't know. It was a while ago. So... Um, just check, just checking out your Instagram. It was like um, maybe as far back as 2011. It's just like yoga, 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 and then your dog sees your business, and then yoga, and then yoga, <laughs> yoga retreat, yoga retreat. I think I can tell you. Let's see. Um, and then like oh, no. I went to yoga retreats in 2011, but I didn't get certified mm-hmm. as a yoga teacher until 2015. Okay. Um, but it seems like around 2016, like early in the year 2016, it's, it started to be less about yoga. That's like a nice long stretch, like five or so years. What was happening? What has happened with your, your yoga practice? Um, so 2016 is when I moved from 
is that right? Yes, 2016, middle of 2016 is when I moved from Ohio where I had been teaching. Um, maybe it was 2014 when I started. Girl, I'm old. I don't have a memory for that kind of stuff. Uh, 2016 is when I moved to California and I started working at the company that took a little tiny bit out of more out of me. So 20, uh, the job I was working at when I was in Ohio, I'd been doing the same thing for so many years that um, I could do it blindfolded. Come to, my, come to my office. What are we talking about? My commute is always the same amount of time unless it's snowing. Got my house. I've got my dog. I've got my routine set. Like it was easy to go to classes. It was easy to teach. Um, classes were also free a lot of times because I was teaching. Um, and so moving to California, when I first moved there, uh, crazy job. My boss expected me to work. Her boss worked remotely. Um, so she was never in the office or rarely in the office. She expected me to work whenever the CEO was in the office, I was supposed to be in the office, but he was in the office from like 7am to 7pm. And my commute was two hours. I was like, <laughs> no, like, I, no, I'm not leaving at five and getting home at nine. Cause that's not while you're at home working from home all day. Like, no, no, that's not, not happening. So um, it was a new job. It was a lot of getting up to speed. It was a lot of, like the commute took so much out of me that it was kind of like focusing on survival at the time. And so my practice has changed in a lot of ways. I don't go to classes as much as I used to. There was a time when I was in the Bay Area and I was really going to classes pretty regularly because I found a studio that I loved. Um, but that was when I moved to Oakland, I cut my commute down by like to like 45 minutes. So it, it freed up some time in my day for that. But um, it, what my, my feelings about yoga haven't changed. The intensity with which my life allows me to access it has ebbed and flowed over the years. So, Especially recently because you have a knee injury that caused yeah. you to have knee surgery. That was about six weeks ago, yeah? Yeah, was, uh, I had my six-week checkup after surgery uh, yesterday, yeah. So I, it's funny, I, um, my friends used to say that I'm allergic to the U.S. because every time I came back to the U.S., something happened that had me in the ER. And this time... I was in the U.S. for less than 12 hours and my knee got super swollen. There was no injury per se, nothing, or should I say there was no moment, nothing happened. I went to bed fine and I woke up and my knee was swollen and like crunchy. And then within like two weeks of that, I was having surgery. No one knows what happened. Literally everyone was like, uh, uh, they looked at the, the MRI showed like three torn ligaments and a torn uh, meniscus. It was just a mess. Wow. Um, yeah. My doctor went in and was like, I don't see all of that. I really just see a torn meniscus. So I'm going to fix that. And that's what he did. And so I'm healing from that. And that's been challenging for you <laughs> because you're used to being more mobile. and I'm used to being more mobile. I'm used to being more independent. I'm used to living alone. What's funny was, so I had, I was living in Mexico City. I had an apartment in Mexico City. I came to, to 
Florida for a week and I've been here for two months. <laughs> I literally can't go. I can't, I can't go home. So, and I won't be able to go for an, probably another month. I have probably at least another month of physical therapy ahead of me. So it's kind of that reminder that like the way you think your life is going to go isn't necessarily what's going to happen. You know, I had uh, plans to be with my best friend. I'm with my best friend every Thanksgiving. We hang out with her kids, her husband. Um, and we just have Thanksgiving together. And I, because I don't typically do the holidays with my family for survival reasons. So um, I... Uh, I asked them this year after I moved to Mexico city to come down for live in Canada to come down to Mexico city and have Thanksgiving with me. And I had to call them and say like, Hey, I don't think it's going to happen. And they already had their flights. They already had their Airbnb. They had everything picked out. Um, and so they didn't want to waste it. So they still went, but it was like, we're coming to visit you and you're not there. And, and my goddaughter cried when she found out I wasn't going to be at Thanksgiving because it's like our one t- guaranteed time to be together every year. So it was really sad, but you know, what, what do you do? And that's part of, I think being an expat or being a nomad, a lot of it is learning to adjust. So when I, I, I picked their Airbnb or I gave them a couple options and I picked it really close to where my apartment was. So I'd be, I was planning on staying with them, but if I had to go home, it'd be really, it was like right around the corner. And so I knew the neighborhood. So I, they could send me a text, like, where should we go for dinner tonight? And I had ideas for them. And so even though I wasn't there, they did all of the tourist things that I would want them to do. I, I wrote a blog post about like the top 10 things to do in Mexico city. Um, and I, I published it before they went. So they would have, so, I figured if I had to write a guide for them, I might as well give it to other people too. So, uh, you know, that's up on the blog and they use that to get ideas of what to do. And I created a list of restaurants for them, which I will probably publish at some time as well. But it was kind of like, how do I, how do I host people when you're not there? And that's, to me, like the core of being a true nomad is figuring out how to do all those things. and. It boils down to one of the things I always tell people about about traveling is like, you're going to have to make so many more decisions than you usually do. Because you can't just drive through the normal spot you go to to get dinner because that normal spot isn't there. So every question from like, what do I want to do today to what am I going to eat today to if you're going longer term, what where should I live? What neighborhood should I live in? What laundry detergent should I use? These are all the questions you have to answer if you're traveling for any, any long period. And if you're traveling for a short period, there are still a ton of questions you have to answer. And so your ability to make decisions and roll with the punches, I believe it gets better the more you travel. So walk us through like what happened. So you were in Ohio living your gorgeous life getting your yoga on, you decided to take a position in California, in the Bay Area. And so how was I, it like hectic? And so yeah. it sounds like maybe you spent five years there? In California? Mm-hmm. Oh, no. So I grew up in California. 
I went to college in the Bay Area. So many of my friends were, and family were back there. Um, and so I wanted to go back to the Bay Area for a long time, but nobody with any sense did my type of work in the Bay Area because it just didn't financially make sense. So um, the company I worked for went out of business. That, like, let's, <laughs> a spoiler alert right there because it just didn't make financial for many reasons, but it didn't make financial sense to do that in that area because it's so expensive to run a company there. Um, and so I didn't want to, I was in Ohio. I loved my job, loved it, did not want to leave it but I did not want to be in Ohio. <laughs> I wanted to be in California. And so someone I know was interviewing for a job at that company and she sent me the job description. I read the job description and it was like, hey girl, we wrote this for you. Come, come take this job. And you know, I called the recruiter and it was one of those recruiters who don't quite understand the job description. So we had a, a kind of a strained conversation I spoke to the hiring manager and on the same call, she was like, okay, so when can you come to California? I'll meet you out there. Um, and we'll, we'll interview. And like pretty much the day I got there, I, I was pretty sure I had the job because I have a very niche practice. Not many people had the experience to do what I could do. And not everyone was going to pick up their life and move to California because most companies that did this do it in Detroit they do it in Texas, some, a couple other places. But unless you were going to find someone who wanted to really move where the cost of living is significantly higher than where they're living right now, um, there weren't a lot of candidates. And I'm damn good at my job. And I, like, it was less work than I was doing at the time. So it was one of those decisions that was pretty easy for me. Um, when I got there, within probably like three months of being there, I was pretty sure the company wasn't going to make it. Now, I was there about two years, yeah, two years for the company. But within three months, I was like, oh, not significantly less than three months, actually. I knew that, that their business model didn't really have a good future. It is what it is. Um, so... 18 months into being there, that was October, uh, they were like, hey, we're shutting the doors and then everybody off. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, you know, you saw it coming. So it was kind of like, yeah. and there was no, you see it coming like whispers of it happening, but you knew that I knew they weren't doing well financially. I knew there were some problems. Um, but they offered me, uh, like, to, they asked me to stay on for six months to help close up the business. And they told me they would pay me double to stay on for six months. So, yeah, I stayed. Mm -hmm. Yep. I was like, I can, you'll pay me twice as much to do literally not even one quarter of the work. Because as at that point, I was the only two lawyers had left already. So I was the only full-time lawyer for the company. And so every legal question came to me. And one thing that people might not know unless they've been in this position is that sometimes people, <clears throat> a lot of times, 
people think that any question they can't answer is a legal question or anything they don't want to do is like for legal to do. So like if it was like really challenging, people would be like, we need you to look at this. And I'm like, it's not a, there's no, it's no question of law. Like just, it's for you to figure out. So I would get questions from like everyone. And I tried to be very fair from like the CEO could email me, the frontline people could email me. I'll answer everyone's questions um, when, I, when I can. <laughs> you know, you get to them when you get to them, but you, I would try to answer everyone's questions. But when they laid off, I don't know, when like 90% of the staff was gone, there were not that many people to ask me questions. And at, at some point there was only me and the CEO. So it was kind of like, and he was looking for a new job or he had a new job. Either way, he wasn't emailing me. I wasn't emailing him. I was still cashing that check. So the last few months of work, I probably did like one quarter or less of what I was, what I'd been doing before. And some days I'd be like, sign on to the, because I was working from home at this point. It was like, you have to sign on and you have to check your email. This is me telling myself, like psyching myself up, like give these people a good half an hour of work, girl. You can do it. Give them a good half an hour of work. Um, but still, I that you identified as suffering from burnout. I did. I did because it had been like so long. And when the people, okay, so... I'm spilling a lot of of tea that I'm trying to be very delicate about spilling right now. But when the company found out they were going under, there was, they were actually sold to another company. There was a lot of people who were in a situation they would never been in before and were trying to figure out how to do it. And it's kind of like, uh, like how a drowning person will often drown the person trying to save them. It was a little bit like that of people who did not know how to do what they were tasked with doing, like uh, not necessarily dragging you down, but like, you know, you, you catch a stray punch every once in a while. That's what it was like. Like, why are you being so bitchy? Like, I just, I just walked in, like, why are you so aggressive with me? What is going on? Like, oh, you're in a bad mood because you've been tasked with doing something you don't know how to do when it's above your skill set and they probably should have hired a professional for. Don't take that out on me. So there was a lot of like people acting real crazy towards the end. And that was what I was talking to my therapist about. People acting super crazy and aggressive and sort of out of character for a normal, I would say, corporate environment. And me catching the brunt of it more frequently than I would want to. And it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't like they just took it out on me. There were, it was kind of like people were testy with everyone they got in contact with, but I didn't, I didn't do that to you. So you take that to therapy and work out your inadequacies or your insecurity about this job you don't know how to do. Don't, don't snap at me. And so for a while, it was just like, how do I distance myself? Like, if you're going to be rude to me in meetings, maybe I don't need to be in these meetings because you can send me an email and I'll deal with it like that because I, I was not born to be disrespected by men in the workplace. It's not, not what I'm put on earth for. 
that puts you in a place where you said, this seems like a great time to take some time to reassess what I'm doing with my life. So, yeah. So uh, I love to travel and I'd seen so many um, people, mostly young white women, travel for half a year and then come back and I'd work as a waitress and then travel for nothing. And I was like, how y'all doing this? Like, is there, is there a, a daddy paying for this? Is there a sugar daddy paying for this? Like, what is, how do you do this? Like, what about financial stability? And, um, you know, I'm an immigrant. I'm a children of, uh, a child of immigrants. So I've, I've had a job. I, I swear to you not when I was, how old was I? 30. When I turned 39, I had had a job or two or three or work every single day, except for two six month periods since I was 12. So job and work or two jobs. Since I was 12, I've been going to school and working. So I had like, there was no, I took a, I took it one break when I was studying for the bar. I was not working then. And I would gotten laid off from my first legal job. And I spent that time volunteering at uh, an organization I was on the board for. So I was still like doing something every day. But the idea of taking time for myself isn't something that had ever come up before. It never seemed possible but all the stars aligned like that job getting laid. Okay. So the first time I got laid off was literally the best thing that ever happened to me. That job. I I talk about these jobs. These jobs were like golden kisses compared to my first legal job. Like the racism, the sexism, the daily like torture (laughs) was awful. It was like crying. Do I have to go to work? Why did I buy this house? I don't want to have a mortgage. Awful. So getting laid off and having some time off and then getting a job that I really enjoyed where people were nice. I mean, they pushed, like I said, there was pushback, um, but they had a really good corporate culture. Second, second job, I just, the one I've been talking about that went under, at the end, people got nasty, but it wasn't like, like these are my peers being nasty with me. These are not senior partners in the law firm who control whether I work or not getting nasty with me like it was in my first job. So that layoff, best thing that ever happened to my life because I was totally depressed. It was an awful job. Um, the second layoff was the, like, it was a blessing. And I didn't, I was much more aware of that than I was with the first layoff. When I got laid off the first time, I was super depressed. And it, it, I felt like I failed, even though it was the height of the recession. And uh, I was in a different specialty at the time. I was in doing real estate, um, commercial real estate financing. And guess what? In the height of the recession, no one was doing any commercial real estate financing. So the banks weren't hiring any lawyers who specialized in that. So there was no work to be done. And so it made sense for me to get laid off. Like it, like it literally, of course you're not working. Like there's no work to do. Um, and they laid off like 20% of their associates at that firm. So it made perfect sense. The second layoff 
they laid everybody. I, I was the last of two employees in the company. Like they laid everybody off. Um, that also, um, they, they couldn't, they didn't have a sustainable model. But that time I could see the blessing. Like, oh, y'all are, y'all are really paying me to do less work every day than I did the day before for twice as much money as you were paying me like just a month ago. I am here for it. Um, and then when I got laid off, like I, I didn't want to lose the job. Like I am a black woman lawyer in corporate America. Like I, I wanted, I want a job. But when I was looking for jobs, there was nothing that I wanted to do that I, I didn't want to do any of the jobs that I could see in the Bay Area to get a job I wanted. I would have to move. And at some point I was like, if I'm going to move, why don't I, do, if I'm going to put my stuff in, if I'm going to move, why not? travel first. And if I'm going to put my stuff in storage to travel because my rent was like two grand a month. So I wasn't going to be paying rent continuously. That, was, that wasn't going to happen. So if I'm going to travel for any length of time, I'm going to put my stuff in storage, then why not travel for a year? Just take a gap year and see what happens. And it was really like the stars aligned. Like my last day of work was April 27th and my lease was up May 8th. And I was going on a pre-planned vacation on, before I knew about uh, the layoff on May 1st. So I literally, that was China and South Korea that I talked about. Got laid off on a Friday, went to China on like a Tuesday. And then I had someone, I let someone stay in my apartment and she turned in the keys like a week later. And I always, it was one of the things I talked to my therapist about it was like the perfect, it was like God released the shackles. And that sounds a little dramatic, I know. But it was, it was an opportunity where I, I didn't have a job because once again, black woman, corporate America, if I had immigrant, if I had a job, I probably wasn't gonna quit it to go travel because my mom would look at me like I was crazy and most of my friends would too. And I would look, I, I would have, I don't think I would have ever been able to do that. It was hard enough to leave without the job. So uh, I didn't have a job. My lease was up and they were trying to increase my rent to get it just a tad bit closer to $3,000. And I was like, I don't, I don't speak that language for a one bedroom. I don't, that's not, I'm not interested in that. So, um, and I didn't want, part of that was I didn't, without having a job, I didn't want to sign a lease for a year or even six months if I didn't know, living in the Bay Area, if I didn't know if I was going to have an income coming in. So this, it was kind of like a shit or get off the pot moment. Like you have to decide, like, are you committed to being here and getting at this point pretty much a job you don't want to do in order to pay the rent? Or what about this like light shining through door number two? And for me, you know, like I wasn't in a relationship. I don't have kids. I had a dog and a friend of mine, I didn't even ask her. She said, Rashida, I know you're considering this. If you want me to take your dog, I will. Praises, Vanessa, I love you. Um, she is now my dog's dog mom because she adopted him last year. So it's really her dog now. Caesar belongs to her. And I've had to become okay with that, but it's what's best for him and what's best for me and Vanessa and her other dog. Everything worked out. Um, 
But I think that if any of those things had been different, if I had a, if I had a lease, if I was like six months through a lease and I had another six months to go and the cancellation fee was huge, maybe I wouldn't have gone. Maybe I'd have looked for a job instead or settled for a job I didn't want. If I had a job, but the lease was up, I definitely wasn't going. If I was in a relationship and he couldn't go, and I really thought this relationship was going to work, would I be leaving for a year? Um, I don't, I don't know. And I, I talked to my therapist about this and I told you she was one to definitely uh, give me her opinion about things in ways that other therapists in the past haven't. But I talked to her and I was like, you know, maybe what I should do is um, sit back for a year, like sit back for a year, get a job, get a new apartment. And then, because literally I got this, mo- this idea like maybe 30 days before I left. So I was like, maybe I do this and I um, get a job, plan it out, save some more money, and then I go a year from now. And she was like, pretty much just told me I was lying to myself, which is true. She's like, you're not going to go. She's like, if you don't go now, you're never going to go. And I was like, what? I mean, don't tell me what I'm going, you know, like the, the stubborn part of me was like, how is she telling me what I'm going to do? And I was like, but she's right. She's right. Yep. She's right. And you know, um, the money that I'd been stacking from the company, uh, giving me the pay to stay, that's the money I use to travel. And I, like I said, that layoff, came at the perfect time because without that, I wouldn't have felt financially secure enough to say like, no, I don't need a job and I have my own resources and I can travel for a year on my own. Now, I know you can do it for a lot cheaper than I did it for. I know that you don't need to get paid double at your, at your company and then leave to do this. I don't know that I would have felt financially secure enough to do that. I'm very much like, I want to hold all my eggs. I want to hold all my eggs. I don't even want them to be in the basket. I want, like, I, I feel secure when I have resources and I like feeling secure. And so I probably would never have gone if I hadn't gotten that extra pay. So like I said, that layoff, it was burnout, but you know, the last few months helped me get my mind right. Um, oh, the company paid for, um, for egg freezing. So the last two months, I was like, take these bad boys. I'm about to hit 40. Take them out. Maybe one day I'll use them. Maybe I won't. I don't know. But you're paying every single cent for it. And this is thousands and thousands of dollars. Let's do this. So it was stuff like that. Like I had an opportunity to take advantage of the resources that I probably wouldn't have. And that I was in a very, I understand that I was in a very privileged place at the time. But yeah, I ran them for their cash and I ran them for their egg fertility, for their egg freezing, you know, that they would pay for and everything else. And I know that they pay for that. So women won't have babies now and they'll put it off and they'll continue to give you your good years, give the company their good years and save babies for later. But right before I checked out that door, I was like, let's do this. Thank you. Every possible service I can do, every doctor I can go to, every, every single resource. You're telling me I don't have a job anymore because not because of something I did, but because you couldn't handle your business correctly. Oh, 
what can I do? What can I sign up for? What can I take advantage of before I leave? These are all things that are provided to me as an employee. Let's do this. So I did want to talk about privilege a little bit because what was it? It was 2013. You were already on your fourth passport and like, you know, being able to afford therapy, being able to afford going on younger retreats. Like yoga is pretty expensive as it is. Yeah. What, what do you think, um, in the, the way you travel, it seems like you rent a place and you kind of just travel like that. So, uh, long term. So you've been in Mexico for some time and like you haven't been there. Like you lived there for all the things in winter. Yep. Um, and then like your stuff, <laughs> like, uh, traveling with a carry-on and a check bag and, and such. So I, I did want to hit on that just a little bit. What do you think your particular privilege is? Although you talk about coming from uh, an immigration standpoint. So I think that um, there are a multitude of different privileges uh, here. And I think that everybody has things that someone else might view as a privilege. Um, I'm, I'm aware in a lot of ways of mine. Um, I come from a family where everyone has traveled, uh, because my, my parents are West Indian. They met in England. I was born in England. So I had, uh, a UK passport as my first one. And then we moved to California when I was two. And so there's that privilege of knowing that uh, my, my first flight wasn't when I was 30. Once again, no shade. Um, and it's not, the privilege there is that I was accustomed to traveling. Not that we went on like vacations together, but I moved to Jamaica when I was eight. I moved back to the States when I was 10. Like I, I have flown when I was 16, I was flew to Jamaica to take care of my grandfather's funeral by myself. Like I, all of those things I recognize helped lead me to who I am today and my ability to sort of say like, okay, let's get on a plane and figure it out. Um, and and there's a privilege to experiencing that and being guided through an airport as a child. You know what I mean? Like there's a, there's a, as a traveler, I'm blessed that I was on flights. Now, like I said, my flights typically were not like, let's go to Hawaii. My flights were like, mommy and daddy want you to live in Jamaica right now because we really, for a lot of, for a few different, very valid reasons, like for the betterment of the family, we can't take care of you right now. And so it was kind of like, uh, okay, like, so I flew. Um, and so I, I recognized that flying might seem and traveling might seem simpler and easier to me because I did it when I was younger. Um, and then there's money. Like I, I was a lawyer. I, I made a good salary, but I also, um, 
am typically a really good steward of money. And so I, I, like I said, I've been working since I was 12. I've never not had a job except for those two, six months periods I told you about. I, um, I've been saving for retirement since I was 18. No joke, like nonstop. Um, I, I bought a house that when I was in Ohio, that was about one fifth of, of the total I was approved for by the bank, like 20, 20% of, of what, of the money I could have borrowed is what I actually borrowed because I don't like loans. Like I wanted to pay off my loans really early. So I did what it took. And so there's a privilege in that I had, I had a nest egg that I could use to travel with, but I've also, I've sacrificed for that nest egg and buying a smaller house than my friends in a neighborhood. That's not as nice as my friends. Um, I'm not going to call that a sacrifice. I'm going to say working really hard and being a good steward of my money and paying off a 30 year mortgage in 10 years that that was the sacrifice. I wasn't, you know, like I got my paycheck. I, I didn't ball out. I paid my student loans. I paid my mortgage. I gave them a lot more money than they needed because I don't like being in debt. And so the mix of working really hard, um, a little bit of luck, definitely on the back end with uh, that company going under, um, but but really always being responsible with my finances has led me. It's like a, a privilege I recognize is there, but it's also not just a privilege. There's some work that I put into it to really allow myself to be financially free. Do you think that being a black woman has impacted your travels? Yes. Um, how to verbalize this? Um, I think it's impossible to not to be black in the world and not have that impact you wherever you are. You know, like is there any place you can go where white supremacy and colonialism haven't, you know, reached out with their ugly grasp and warped minds? It, it's hard as a traveler to, um, to pretend that the things that you experience aren't at least some way tinged by being black. And I'm not saying that everything every day is racism. I'm saying that there are times when you travel when you're gonna feel like, oh, wait, did that happen because I'm black? And no matter what country you're in, even if you're in some African countries, the answer, the answer might be yes. Um, and then there, there's also the idea that sometimes I feel super safe because I'm black and sometimes I feel unsafe because I'm black. And so it just depends on like where I am and what's going on. What are some of your self-care practices? Uh, Yoga when I can, meditation. I cut out anyone causing me grief, legit, anyone. 
I don't, <laughs> I don't play that shit. Like literally I, my peace is my highest priority. And so I don't care if we're related. If you cause me extended grief, you got to go. Um, and then I just try to be a good person. I feel like if you're a good person, not like, Uh, not like faking it, but you're really like minding your business. Very important. Minding your business and just doing the best you can each day to be a good, decent human. Like life is pretty good most of the time. That minding your business part is really important though. And is there anything particular that you do that helps to keep you grounded as you travel or as you're in this uncomfortable situation, staying with your family while you heal through surgery? So I meditate. Um, I, I go through periods where I read a lot and then periods where I'm like, what is on Netflix? Like, so I, I try to balance that out. Um, I journal daily. And then I try to, I try to write something daily, something either creative or like a blog post or something like that. Um, yeah, I think I think meditating and journaling are my two like go tos for staying grounded, and once again, minding my business and getting people to mind theirs at boundaries. That I I. <laughs> boundaries to her like at least once a week just and she knows what I mean like boundaries because whatever she's doing we don't have we don't share the same boundaries and so sometimes she thinks something is perfectly okay and I'm like hey girl I know I'm in your house but like as long as I'm here I really want you to respect my boundaries or I won't want to come back and so for me you know they say good fences make good neighbors you have to have your own personal fences too. And that's something that's always helped me. Um, and when you travel, is there any particular way that you like to explore? Uh, no, I'm more of a, let's get there and figure it out, figure out what feels right kind of person. So I like art. So I like museums. I want to see you know, a couple of big museums in town. I want to see any big landmarks. I'd like to see um, if I'm in a country that doesn't have a black population, like a, a large black population, but has a small black community. I want to check that out if I can. Um, but there's no specific way. I, as far as like getting around, I love, I love, uh, subway systems. So if a city has a subway, I am set. You will see me in a couple of days. I am traveling. I'm out and about. Um, but there's no like formula for my trips. It's just kind of figured out a lot of <sighs> traveling. One of the things people underestimate about traveling is how exhausting it can be. And so for me, when I traveled nonstop for like a year and a half, uh, I realized that I would go to I, some of the countries I went to, I would just be, cause I had, I bought the ticket like three weeks in advance or two weeks in advance. 
by the time I got there, like all I want to do was sleep, especially if I was only going to be there for a couple of days. Like, yes, I'm sure it's beautiful. I'm going to have to come back because I feel like I, my, my body is telling me that I need to rest. And so there's some countries where I feel like I saw everything and some countries where I'm like, was I really there? I don't think we count this one. Not that I country count, but you know, like I don't, it's just, it doesn't, a different experience everywhere I go. Do you have any hobbies or interests that aren't necessarily about making money? Oh, I like money. Uh, but, uh, like I said, I love, I love art. You know, I love yoga. So I try to be creative. Um, I, um, I think like being involved in art, doing yoga, eating all the food, all of it. it can, can eating be a hobby? If it is, I'm down. Um, and binge watching bad TV shows. I, I would say travel, but you kind of already like, I used to say travel, but it's kind of obvious now. So it doesn't, I don't know. So yes, travel is definitely probably my biggest hobby. Um, do you have any poems or song lyrics that speak to you these days? Um, <laughs> no, nothing that comes to mind. Uh, no. And that's me totally censoring myself because most of my like song lyrics are something that's pretty disrespectful from gangster rap, like something from some like rap lyric, but I'm like, I can't say that on this podcast. So, and that, and they have nothing to do with this like time in my life. It's just something that typically sticks around with me. So the answer to your question is no. Okay. Um, and I all, I always like to have guests share how they like to be supported. So if someone were listening and they wanted to connect with you or connect with your work um, as a gap year minister, um, radical self-care evangelist and joy seeker, uh, is there a particular place where you like to, or places where you like for them to connect with you or a specific piece of content? So um, I appreciate that you have been on my website because that is one of the places I would like people to connect with me. I love it when people subscribe to my newsletter and you can get to that at sheetasontheloose.com slash subscribe or when people follow me on Instagram and on Instagram, I'm Sheeta D and you'll see um, mostly travel advice in both of those places if you scroll back like Wanda did, you will see my dog and yoga and everything that aren't applicable, but you don't have to go back that far. Stick in like 2018 or 2000, yeah, 2018 to current. And you'll see, like I said, mostly travel advice, places I've been, um, maybe some good stories. Uh, so those are the two main places. I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, all over the place, but I cross post enough. But if you hit me up, in either of those two places, you'll see the other stuff floating along. Well, thank you so very much um, for sharing your experiences, for being so open, for 
respecting your own boundaries. <laughs> um, we really appreciate you um, giving us just another experience. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate this. This was uh, a good conversation and you pushed me in ways I was not expecting. <laughs> I should have known though. I should have known. Ba da 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 da